All right, welcome to TK Live. This is Matt. Can everybody hear me? All right, as usual, there are always some kinks at the beginning of this. I'm looking for Chris in the crowd. Uh, analyst Christopher Mott is here somewhere. And I just don't see him. So, uh, hang on one moment. Does anyone see Chris in the crowd? What row is he in? All right, folks, I'm gonna, I apologize. I'm going to try to work this out. Um, once again, we're having a problem connecting with the guest. Folks, hang on one, just one more moment. All right, Chris, you should be able to, Chris, can you hear me? I don't understand what's going on, so um, I'm just going to proceed. 
All right, folks, I apologize for the delay. I'm just going to proceed without Chris for the moment. Um, Hang on just one moment, if you could. All right, folks, I'm, I'm just going to keep going. Uh, I apologize for the delay. Uh, I think we're going to get this sorted out, um, hopefully momentarily, but uh, everybody can hear me? All right, great. So this um, this is a topic that I've been uh, kind of following for a long time and wrote a piece about earlier this week. Um, and which was called the, uh, the Great American Military Rebuild. Sort of the backstory of this, Chris has his own interesting backstory because he just wrote a piece, um, which I linked to for the, um, the Institute for Peace and Democracy, which is sort of a new um, think tank. And uh, this, this idea has been kind of percolating, percolating in his mind, this whole idea of a, of a rebrand of the military uh, has been going on for a while. He um, he wrote wrote a, a, a paper called "Woke Imperium: The Coming Confluence Between Social Justice and Neoconservatism," which essentially says, and this is similar to what I wrote uh, in my my piece earlier this week, that the, the um, what he, what he calls the um, rebrand, the millennial rebrand of the neoconservative project began in the early 2010s, in the early Obama years, after uh, the failures of Iraq, after the failures of Afghanistan, after uh, public frustration over um, over the, uh, uh, the, the sort of mid- Middle East um, project, the war on terror, uh, that had been very politically unpopular beginning in the midterms in 2006, uh, extending to the 2008 elections, um, and uh, which had a, where they had a major impact, not only in making it very difficult for the Republicans to win, but also uh, helping Barack Obama, who was the only you know, even mildly credible anti-war candidate, helping him get past Hillary Clinton uh, in the primary season, despite overwhelming support of the uh, Democratic Party establishment. So um, the national security apparatus uh, was deeply unpopular at that time, and um, and they had to do a, a rebrand, basically, uh, where rather than talking about ridding the world of tyranny and spreading benevolent hegemony through the world and uh, in the in the language that 
um, that neoconservatives had used uh, that it was better to rebrand essentially the idea of what the military was for um, as, as a, an explicitly humanitarian project that was designed to achieve uh, social justice and progressive aims abroad to prevent things like the enslavement of children by Central African warlords or the repression of women in Afghanistan uh, or even anti-blackness in Cuba. You know, there was a sanction re sanctions regime which was tied to that. Um, and what Chris called sort of moralistic conditions, um, you know, started, started to replace the whole idea of real politic. Uh, and it, beginning with the Coney uh, 2012 uh, viral campaign on YouTube, which some of you may remember, uh, extending through the uh, invasion of Libya, which was explicitly justified on the grounds of the R2P, uh, responsibility to protect doctrine of the United Nations, and then going forward through um, the invasion of Libya or the, the intervention in, into Libya. Uh, then there was Syria, the continued presence in, in Afghanistan, which is where the withdrawal was delayed significantly for a long time. Um, all of this was done uh, after the defense budget was cut in 2011, or and uh, basically the idea was that they, they just sort of systematically replaced the language of uh, the Bush years, um, where you know the, this whole idea that we had to go and conquer every country that wasn't explicitly under our control, uh, and that there was this nefarious axis of evil out there. Um, that uh, that was somehow um, tied together, even though there there was no explicit tie between a lot of the, between Korea, Iran, and Iraq. Um, it was just very common for politicians at that time to say completely illogical things and have it go completely over the heads of the media, or have it be uh, unchallenged or unaccepted. Uh, the piece that I wrote kind of talks about how, um, you know, for, for some people in the in the news media watching that, it was like watching uh, this crazy satire at the time because the, it was just, it was so normal for illogical things to be said by politicians and just unchallenged by the press. And now we're kind of at exactly the same place, although it's just sort of inverted, um, where, you uh, I was really struck by this a couple of weeks ago, or actually it was earlier this, um, uh, maybe a week ago, when the, the New York Times had a guest essay called Putin Thinks He's Winning. And I want to read from a passage from, from that piece uh, where it talks about what one of Putin's world objectives is. In Mr. Putin's thinking, and, and there's an ellipsis here, so I've cut a piece out, the bad West is declining and doomed while the good West is slowly challenging the status quo with a raft of nationally oriented leaders, such as Viktor Orban in Hungary, Marine Le Pen in France, and even Donald Trump in the United States. Um, so this is like exactly the axis of evil, as Chris said, I, I wish he was here. It's, it's exactly the same thing as he put it. It's we'll pick these random countries that don't actually have all that much going on between them, but because we don't like them, 
will say that they're part of a secret cabal. Uh, it's just it's just like the progressive version of the axis of evil now. Um, this idea of democracy versus autocracy, uh, it, you know, it's it's the same idea. It's just reconfigured for a different audience. Um, it's delivered with a different tone. Um, and we replaced all kinds of language with new language. So instead of having the 1% doctrine, which was Dick Cheney's idea that we just can't risk inaction. We can't risk not doing anything. If there's, if there's even a 1% chance that, uh, that Saddam Hussein might be able to, um, uh, that he might be able to deliver a, a nuclear weapon. Up oh, here's Chris. Here we go. Chris, are you there? Got to unmute. Well, Chris is there. When, when, when at the bottom of the. There we go. Hello. Yeah, this is my first time using this app. <laughs> no, no. Believe me, it's I, 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 I. I always have an issue at the beginning of this. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I want to publicly apologize to everybody here. Um, and I had, I had a disaster with this last week when I lost connectivity. So anyway, thanks for hanging in. I really appreciate it. I, if you have to leave early, I, I, I understand. No problem. Apparently it's extra complicated if you have a uh, Android. So uh, for future oh, okay. Gotcha. That might be it. All right. Well, um, I've already started talking. I can do you maybe want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and also the sort of interesting backstory of how you wrote this paper? Because I, I thought that was interesting as well. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, the uh, so I work for a, uh, a um, think tank, a new think tank called the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. And uh, we, we are like part of the realism and restraint community, similar to the uh, Quincy Institute and stuff like that. Uh, we're jointly based in Canada and the U.S. And um, we do like a bit, sometimes we do a bit different research than a lot of what these other groups do. Uh, so I, after working for them for a bit and doing uh, more kind of typical geopolitical analysis, I approached them with an idea I've had for about a decade now. Uh, and, and in the, in the assumption that they would not be, they would probably turn me down. But I thought it would be interesting. And that idea... Uh, was this thing called the woke imperium, <laughs> um, which was basically 10 years of observation from myself that I just had going on in the background. It wasn't my main thing or anything, uh, but just gradually noticing a pivot from foreign policy interventionism um, away from the kind of uh, right wing stereotype of the Bush uh, administration, the kind of uh, overtly neoconservative class of civilizations um, uh, kind of like defending Christendom from the heathen horde uh, and, and that type of thing into this very human rightsy, uh, very aware of oppression, uh, social justice kind of oriented turn. And the reason that I had been noticing that for so long, and I know I'm not the only person that noticed this, of course, but I think I was one of the first people to pick up on it was because I was a graduate student um, at the uh, in international relations at the time that Coney 2012 really took off. <laughs> and for me, that was a really catalyzing moment. It was a, um, it was, it was very obvious to me considering how much media support there was 
for this very flash in the pan uh, social media campaign that was all about capturing Joseph Kony uh, for war crimes in, in his uh, long running war in the state of Uganda and other Central African states and his recruitment of child soldiers, et cetera. Um, uh, and, and the way that everyone just kind of fell uh, behind on it. And this is, of course, right after the Obama administration had been moving towards kind of cutting the defense budget and in some ways, uh, at least rhetorically, winding down the war on terror. But then, uh, as we know, uh, the defense budget started growing again. There was more, a huge expansion of AFRICOM, which is the uh, U.S. Uh, military base network and alliance network in sub-Saharan Africa. And this just kind of coincided <laughs> with this Kony 2012 thing, right? <laughs> right. Um, and, and, and I was like, hmm, I'm so interested in this. And the fact that it, it ended kind of dramatically with the, the front man having this public naked meltdown running down the street ranting after he had received criticism for the kind of the simplification that his, his campaign had done, uh, to the conflict and whatnot. Um, that was it, very bizarre. It was so As weird. Stories go, even by internet standards, that was a weird story. It was. It still is a weird story, and, and you know, like I, I feel like the whole thing has been memory hold quite a bit. But to me, it, it's a really standout moment in like my life as like an observer of events. And, and there was something about it, and like how dramatic it happened and everything. Um, but it stuck in my mind, and ever since then, I've just had this. I've just been gradually cultivating these examples of, of things that have been falling in that trend, which is to kind of build back up the desire amongst the public and the policymaking class to engage in interventionism uh, and justify interventionism, uh, but now with a different target audience. So it's no longer like Mr. Toby Keith guy, uh, you know, a manly, you know, Texas trucker man. Now they're really going for the kind of professional managerial class. And it's not just a question of advertising, of course, because what is actually happening here is more and more younger people of uh, certain kind of academic and economic backgrounds are entering the workforce. Uh, and that includes the federal government workforce. That includes the NGOs. And their priorities are different. Um, and they there's, of course, a lot of them. And they have to compete against each other. Uh, so there needs to be something they can compete over to prove their group loyalty. So it's kind of like how fashionable are their causes, you know, how do they push for certain policies that perhaps certain factions of the political establishment want to see more of. And so you have this kind of uh, Peter Turchin-esque uh, elite overproduction, but it's it's for kind of Ivy League grads and uh, who, who care about social justice and whatever, but who are also going into the intelligence services, uh, the military and um, foreign policy commentary world. So this is to me was always something once I entered the think tank world, um, which I did a couple of years ago uh, after I got out of grad school, I, I worked for the State Department, actually. So I have <laughs> I have some <laughs> experience with these people up close. Um, but um, one once I went into the think tank world, it, it seemed like the process was accelerating. And so I was seeing this. And this is, once again, this is not my focus. Like, I like to talk about, like, geography and, like, uh, military capability and who allies with who and why they do that. Like, it's not normally the thing I write about. But this kind of thing just kept happening. And it became obvious that once I was in the kind of underdog faction of think tank world, which is like realism and restraint, the kind of anti-interventionist faction, 
um, it, it became really obvious to me that there was this whole ideological element that people were neglecting when they kind of pushed back against those uh, establishment narratives about, um, you know, the, the goodness of huge defense budgets and intervening in various countries and not having relations and, and imposing sanctions, blah, blah, blah. All those things, uh, which are things in, in separate categories I've written and researched about. I'm a co-author on a sanctions report that I think proves pretty decisively not just how ineffective sanctions are, but how they can actually backfire entirely on their uh, stated uh, purpose. But, you know, what, as we argue these like nitty, uh, you know, nitty gritty kind of like uh, policy by policy thing, I think most of the realism and restraint community was overlooking this huge factor, which is that there's this kind of new form of groupthink on the interventionist wing uh, that exists for a variety of reasons, partly genuine belief, partly cynicism and and all things that combine. But but what it does is it shuts down criticism of the people who engage in it. So if you don't want to intervene in country X, Y, and Z, it's because you hate the people that live there or you love the dictator of the country or you you don't want to be on the quote-unquote right side of history, et cetera, et cetera. And it just became so obvious. And at this point, I knew I had to write <laughs> Woke Imperium. <laughs> this was like a year ago, and, and, and uh, I, I definitely wasn't starting yet, but I knew I had to do it. It was just so obvious that it was... It was a way of creating um, of a ideologically homogenous clique, not just in Washington, D.C., but also as a kind of civilizational state uh, raison d'etre for the kind of English speaking world as a whole to say this is why we're different and preferable to other great powers, because only we care about human rights. Only we will protect minorities. Uh, we're the chosen people. Uh, and of course, this is very rooted in Anglo-American culture, uh, going back to the Reformation, at least. Yeah, that, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, that's what's so interesting, right? Because I went back and I, I, I didn't even remember Coney 2012. I, I, I probably watched it at the time, but I, I went and rewatched it. And first of all, it, it kind of reminded me in a little in an insulting way of like loose change. It was a really slick piece of filmmaking, very oh, yeah. uh, and. But what it did, right, it, it, it basically, it's it's like the old Sally Struthers videos like that that pulled at your heartstrings about uh, these vulnerable children in Africa. But instead of getting you to donate, what they want you to do explicitly is call up a member, you know, a, 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 an influential politician and get them to, quote unquote, act. Right. Like that's yeah. the, the, the ultimate message of that video. And. And it's it's incredibly effective, and and that's and what you're talking about this this thread of sort of messianism that goes back to the Re Reformation. It's sort of, it's sort of exactly the same thing that Bush was talking about, um, where you know we're basically going to rescue humanity by you know uh, bringing the gift of democracy around the world, um, but it's just re it's just refitted, right? It's, is it just different language? Yeah, um, well, I think there are there are some differences between each phase of this kind of messianic ideology, but they all serve the same purpose, and, and there are more similarities than differences between them, as far as I'm concerned. And I actually, I would go so far as to say, like, look beyond obvious party divisions and look beyond left and right, and and say they are part of the same ideological complex, which is that missionary mentality that we are going to save the world. 
the other people are ignorant or benighted or they're not they don't have the right form of religion slash government slash whatever social system and it's our job to you know help them see the light if you will and and if you believe that there is one way to govern the entire planet one way uh, we move towards the quote-unquote end of history or the book of revelation or what have you then you have an, a built-in back pocket excuse to basically attack or undermine the sovereignty of anyone that you want to <laughs> because you have a global mission that they don't. And the similarities with Bush, I actually think, are quite striking. And in the beginning of my white paper, even though it's, it's specifically about the contemporary phase, I make sure to talk a, a fair amount about the Bush administration because I do feel that it wasn't just like the democracy promotion um, by force around the world, though that obviously is a big part of it. A lot of people forget that Bush had this very weird, uh, religiously tinged, condescending uh, attitude towards a lot of African countries, and it was rooted in the desire for kind of domestic base reasons to uh, to tie aid to African countries to uh, abstinence-only education initiatives. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Bush was like trying to like teach like sex is bad, don't have sex, like you know, uh, and, and not, nothing, nothing, you know, sex stuff couldn't come from from all these things that were legitimately immediately related to family planning. So totally ridiculous. There were some studies that were done on these policies a few years later that proved that they had actually been complete and total failures. And the U.S. has never uh, replicated this experiment again, to my knowledge. Hopefully not. Uh, but with that kind of thing, you see the, the non-military side of the attitude, too. And, of course, back then, as, as all of us who were, like, alive and conscious during that era, I actually, you know, became an adult. I, I came of age literally the same, uh, about exactly the same time that the Iraq War happened. So um, I, I'm, like, of the Bush era in a sense. But, like, there was this extremely strong social conservatism in that time that was politically... Uh, quite strong. I mean, yeah, it had descended with Reagan and so forth, and the religious right was still, was continuously powerful. But I think Bush, as an overtly evangelical president, um, was kind of the high point in a way. But he did such an awful job as a president that he discredited everything, and right. we don't really have quite that uh, that concoction on the right anymore. But it was so strong then, and that was the cultural zeitgeist of that time, and it leaked into the foreign policy. And in that way, it's incredibly similar to what we see now, with the cultural zeitgeist being on the other foot, and it's kind of repeating that process too, if you will. Right. I mean, the I, I, before you got on, I was talking about the kind of striking similarities between the axis of evil, this this idea that there was this nefarious, undefined, uh, vague, not explicitly connected, uh, chaos-like network of autocratic enemies um, who were who existed because they were killers and they were evil uh, and they hated democracy. And how is that substantially different from what we're reading? You know, reading now we're in the New York Times, they're saying there's a new world order where Putin, Le Pen, and Orban, and Trump um, all yeah. some, I mean, it's, isn't that, a, it's a very similar idea, isn't it? Very. I, I function, it appeals, it's meant to appeal to what what is, I think, by normies considered to be the quote-unquote opposite side of the spectrum, but it is 100% uh, the same process, and it's absolutely to put 
it's basically putting American conceptions of, of good and bad and good governance and bad governance onto a global Manichean framework. So uh, it, it's all like, we're the good guys, people that disagree with us are bad, which means all the people we disagree with are secretly in a cabal together because there's only good versus evil. There isn't like nuanced local politics or anything like that. And so um, it, it's it's an idea to kind of grossly simplify things and to blow out of proportion many of the threats that people face and, and uh, on the more cynical side want to kind of raise defense budgets, raise money against. So you've got this idea that there's a secret alliance between various different foreign heads of state, and it is incredibly access of evil-like. In fact, I myself have turned heard, unironically, not commonly, but I have heard it, people use the phrase authoritarian access to describe the <laughs> growing relationship be between China, Russia, and Iran. And to me, it's like, well, okay, their relationships are growing, but it's also partly because we're pushing them together. <laughs> um, uh, particularly Iran. I don't think Iran actually wants to be like super in bed with these people any more than anyone else, but it, it's so under threat by the U.S. that it just kind of feels that it has to. Um, so this is like a really similar thing to when Bush said, you know, Iraq, Iran, two are totally enemies with each other. And North Korea, who had nothing to do with the other two, were all in a secret cabal against the United States. And he said that, what, in 2004, I think? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and it's so similar to that. But now it's the people. Now it's the uh, the NPR, like, liberal people who used to hate Bush and call him a monkey and say he was stupid, correctly, in my opinion. Um, and now they're all aping that rhetoric and, and they, they're like, well, what, why do you, it's almost like the same line from back then. Why do you hate freedom? Right. If you like question it, like why? <laughs> why do you hate democracy? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the idea that you would have, you know, this shy, you know, religious autocracy in Iran mixed with this, uh, sort of post, uh, you know, co communist oligarchy, or I guess it's still explicitly communist in, in, in China, and Putin, that they're all somehow related in, in, in some meaningful way. And then also, furthermore, linked to Trump and, you know, the, the anti-abortion movement. I mean, I thought it was amazing listening to the Prince Harry speech. I mentioned this in the piece that he he was like linking the the overturning of Roe v. Wade to the, you know, the, to uh, the Ukraine war and saying that they were both sort of uh, offenses to Mandela's dream. I mean, again, one is a 50 year yeah. political religious movement in the United States. The other is a brand new, unrelated European territorial conflict. But it's exactly the same kind of chauvinism to assume that everybody is oriented uh, or everyone orients themselves uh, to, in terms of how they feel about the United States. Yeah, specifically the U.S. domestic politics, um, which are then universalized to be actually the world politics or e either in the light version as a weather vane for the world politics or literally causing it because more people thinking bad thoughts or whatever. And, <laughs> and then jumping on the bad thought train. It, it's very... It's very strange, and it very much comes across like a kind of revivalist, like, cult mentality. And I think it is, you know, it's just... It, but one thing that is correct is that both of these movements not only are kind of helping justify interventionism, you can see 
Um, back in the day, obviously, Republicans were much more militaristic uh, under Bush and Democrats were more dovish. And now the situation is almost reversed on many foreign policy issues. And and you kind of see that the effects of, of this swing. And, and it just goes to show, I think, that one thing that those people are right when they make these observations about is that the American culture war is, in fact, impacting U.S. foreign policy, but it's not because every other country is in the American culture war. It's because whoever is the kind of, uh, you know, useful faction uh, at home can be whipped up to support adventures abroad. So the culture war serves as a way to manufacture consent for more militaristic policies. Right. Yeah. And and again, the, the inverse is, is striking. I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, if you go back to what the bestsellers were in 2005. You, you'd have Sean Hannity talking about deliver us from evil, defeating terrorism, despotism, and liberalism. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They were all clearly linked, right? Like, you know, those sort of liberal college professors. Uh, and, um, you know, and... and yeah. exactly. Liberal college professors in particular were, were singled out as particularly... Um, like evil and anti-American. And now it seems that liberal college professors still hated by the right tend to be like the people who are like, well, why don't you love, uh, why don't you love the NSA? Why, why would you, why would you say a talking point that goes against what our government says about, you know, this conflict zone? Don't you know you might be spreading disinformation? And it's really funny to just see that invert. Incredible. And then, you know, and, as all this is going on, you know, we've had this, uh, you know, both under, well, first of all, here's the question I want to ask. How much do you think all this was accelerated by uh, Trump's election? Because this, um, there's this worldwide anti-democratic movement, because there, there is a little bit of something to that, right? There was this kind of series of events globally where there's this quasi-populist revolt against the quote-unquote elites that happen in different, uh, you know, whether it was Brexit um, or, you know, or Hungary or Trump. Uh, but but after that, I felt like there was this incredible panic uh, after Trump's election that, that brought this idea of uh, this evil force all around us into like the media mainstream, especially. Uh, but how much do you think the Trump's election had, had to do with this? Uh, I think it, uh, so I think this process already was underfoot before that happened, but I think it, it accelerated the process so rapidly that it became hard to ignore. So it was kind of like a background thing. And then when I would like make jokes about it, like to my friends under the Obama administration, uh, people would, people would say like, Oh, well, uh, you're being hyperbolic, but you know, whatever. Uh, but then I think when Trump gets elected, surprising well not you if i remember correctly but but most people uh <laughs> um well i, I think later on but yeah definitely yeah I, the the crisis mode mentality just ramped all of this up immediately and so you have the kind of foreign policy bipartisan establishment uh who really wasn't happy with that outcome by and large 
Uh, even though obviously Trump was completely fake when he said that he was like a more restrained foreign policy uh, president. I mean, he didn't technically he didn't start any new wars, but he greatly expanded, say, it's like the Yemen operations and, and almost started a new war with Iran. So, you know, the, the, he, he has he, he definitely wasn't telling the truth either, but they really didn't like him and they closed ranks really hard and they were shocked. And I think they had to reaffirm their worldview in the United States. And it turns out their worldview in the United States is not as a powerful country or a country with interests or anything like that. No, their worldview of the United States is a very post-Cold War hegemonic worldview, uh, which is that the U.S. sets the tone for the rest of the world. So even if the White House was like occupied by this interloper, uh, and, and crapping on everything. They could use uh, what establishment positions that they could have and kind of be like, remind the world, no, the U.S. is, is really the beacon of democracy, you know, the West Wing fantasy, because how many people in D.C. unironically enjoy the West Wing? I think it's a huge percentage of people, and I think that's actually where the worldview comes from. So <laughs> <laughs> that and, like, Harry Potter and Marvel movies. And, and so they, they, like, put these things together and they're like but we are still the good guys and like if we can fight this you know fascism or whatever here then we can fight it anywhere and, and i think it just created a fever dream where they saw all these connections many of which were not there um right. and and just doubled down into the whole like but america is exceptional america is beautiful um america is great at the same time though they had to co confront some ugly truths like america is uh perhaps has a really complicated history and uh not everyone is super happy with everything that's gone on so and Trump was like a, a big, ugly, you know, thing to rub in their face to say like, oh, yeah, a lot of the American people, they don't agree with you. They don't like this. So I think they it made them even more attracted to this narrative, like the 1619 Project type narrative, where it's like a uniquely evil country in some ways, but it's always in the process of fixing itself and building itself up and, and becoming like a weather vane of democracy. And so it's it's a missionary mentality in a sense. It's like, oh, well, I'm I'm a flawed sinner, but, you know, I'm a flawed sinner who knows I'm a sinner and I'm trying to fix myself up. And, yeah. and obviously you can see the utility in the long run for the foreign policy establishment um, when, like uh, Linda Thomas-Grenfeld, the U.N. ambassador, uh, current, you know, was talking about the 1619 Project uh, um, in the diplomatic meeting even and saying she said something, I'm paraphrasing, but it was quite similar to um, we're having a historical reckoning and we think the rest of the world should learn from us and also have a historical reckoning. And I think immediately that should set off alarm bells because it, it, it's like, oh, yes, we're just going to take the U.S. understanding of history and apply it to the whole world and also say, like, oh, you guys really should do something. Maybe you should have an American NGO come in and uh, reform your government, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, 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 the weird, like, self-mortification and missionary um, attitude at the same time is, is it's very odd, right? Like, we're the worst country in the world, but but we're also going to save you from your sins at the same time. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's not really a contradiction. I guess I guess that y you can think that way. It's just it's a little odd. Uh, it's, very, it's a very common way of thinking and philosophizing in many Christian cultures, and um, in particular, I, I would say Protestant Christian cultures. Um, that kind of like total depravity, original sin thing. 
but but I know because of that, I know the cheat sheet. I know what's best for you uh, because I overcame my demons. And, and it just really goes with the flow because so many of our culture war aspects in the U.S. going way back, going back to before the country existed, were all about like groups of people who wanted to prove their self-righteousness because that was the kind of the currency of the ideology and um, whose primary interests, I, I think, in the end are, uh, you know, uh, to to say well, you know, to kind of uh, export this, uh, it was openly a religion and now it's more of a civic religion, but but this kind of idea, this idea of like sin and redemption and uh, spreading the faith and all that. I mean, it, it's, it, we have not broken from the past as much as these people think, which is kind of ironic because I think their whole ideology is kind of to, to declare war on history and to say that only the future matters and the past is just bad and you, you can only learn things that are bad from it and, and how not to do those things, but otherwise it has no value. Uh, so, but that, that is not dissimilar from many uh, religious movements throughout history, particularly, I would say, in the Anglo-American world. Yeah, it's, it's 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 so amazing how seamless the transition has been from like one, one group of sort of messianic, uh, Puritan influenced Americans to another, but um, but I, well, if you're up for it, I want to take a couple of questions in a minute. But I I just quickly want to look back at um, this moment in 2016. I actually we didn't ask you about this before, but I remember when Donald Trump first started talking about NATO. Do you remember this in early 2016? Like uh, I was in Wisconsin when he said something to the effect that NATO was obsolete. And this was right after an interview he gave to the Times. I feel like it was David Sanger, maybe, where he said that they were being economically unfair to us. And this, this, he got a, he started getting a good crowd reaction to this. Um, and there was an unusually large amount of cheers in the, he was like a comedian. He would sort of introduce themes and see how they would go over. And okay, yeah. this theme started to pick up. That was when I noticed that he, like the, the negative press on Trump just went to like, you know, a million at that point. Um, Like he was a wholly unsuitable candidate. Even the Republicans uh, started to really, really freak out about about him at that point. Um, But this idea that, that NATO is NATO like the instrument of basically uh, the messianic cause. I mean, is, is, is that, is that the institutional, um thing through which all of this flows um i mean i think that it, the people that support these causes um i think they view it that way um i myself would not put it that way because remember nato is geographically limited albeit they take they they keep reducing its limits every every couple decades or so but like nato is a is a europe mediterranean alliance network it does not exist in other parts of the world including arguably more important parts of the world uh for for u.s global position uh so it's it is focused on one specific thing um and it was initially i mean we can debate the semantics of this but it was initially like more of a defensive than an offensive alliance in the context of the cold war in the context of like the soviet conventional um military superiority in europe um and it, it needed a reason to exist after the end of the Cold War because there was no longer this threat of just huge swathes of Russian tanks going all across Germany, maybe France, maybe Italy. Uh, so they kind of 
it just kind of like lingered. I mean, it was it was still retained. I would argue was kind of just an anti-Russian alliance in general, uh, and it kept growing, but it wasn't necessarily didn't really have a mission. It was only invoked the defense of uh, NATO countries was only invoked after nine eleven. So NATO, weirdly enough, ha- has its only like external unified deployment in Afghanistan of all places. Um, yeah. So it's very, it's very odd. The whole thing is very confusing. I don't think anyone, I just think it's an institution that wants to survive. And and I think that uh, allied countries like free riding on the U.S. defense budget. So they're more than happy to kind of be like, oh, NATO is so important to us. If America takes away NATO, who knows what would happen? Now, granted, NATO is a lot more popular and relevant now than it was before, thanks to Russia. <laughs> um, so that that's an interesting new dynamic. But um, I, I do think that there's been a class of people in Europe and the U.S. who have come to see it as a values-based alliance, uh, despite all that obvious messy history that shows that it's really just its own thing and it exists for very specific reasons. Um, I think they see it that way. And I, I also think, and this is something I postulate in, in my white paper, The Woke Imperium, um, uh, is that there are certain countries that do like the idea of the Woke Imperium. There aren't very many of them. Like my overwhelming prediction is that this backfires terribly on U.S. interests uh, and diplomacy all over the place. But there are some countries that do like this, and, and all of those countries are NATO countries. So we're talking about Germany. We're talking about the Netherlands. We're talking about like many of the Scandinavian countries. They they have effectively the same kind of value network, and I think that they like the idea. Not only can they get U.S. help for their defense and therefore spend less money domestically and have not have to tax people as much for defense, but also like feel like they're part of this civilizational block, which is very much like Immanuel Kant's military alliance, if you will, right? It upholds democracy and values and whatnot. Um, so they, they internalize it that way. But I myself would not describe NATO as a, um, uh, as intrinsically, um, a values-based alliance. Although I, it's possible that if current trends continue, that it will be one. <laughs> so I can't rule that out. But yeah, and how sometimes shorthanded that way in the media. But yeah, exactly. And it, it, it isn't really, in fact, at least not yet. Um, do you have time for a couple of questions? Absolutely. All right. Excellent. Let's see. Uh, let's see who's up. Uh, I think Eric. Are you still there? If you are, you got to unmute yourself. No? All right. This is another. Let's try Tom. Here I am. Oh, okay. Who's that? (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's see. Let's try Seely or Kele or. Uh, Seely. Hi. How are you doing? Hi, I was looking for something. Um, hi, hi, Chris. Okay. Uh, my question is um, about, I understand that what you're talking about is more like an internal propaganda, not, pro, not to sell to the rest of the world. Is that right? Uh, no, it's a bit of both. <laughs> it's a bit of both because what, I, what I've seen now, I mean, abroad is that they're being very honest. I mean, they're saying we are going to bomb China. We have all this armament. Uh, this was uh, Biden and Trudeau talking to 
the heads of states in the Summit of the Americas. It's published in, in very serious newspapers. And they are, they are like threatening. It's like when these BRICS things start spanning with Iran and, and Argentina, coupling up with Brazil and well, the rest of the BRICS, it started like this, like this threat like it's it's not and no it's not the what we also see as like bolsonaro like exactly what you talk about like uh, this uh, being funded this extremist right uh, evangelical anti-abortion anti-everything uh, candidates that we have that they are that they appeared magically out of the out of nothing and at the same time that Bolsonaro was was at his best moment and it's the same speech that Orban is has which is really weird as you said because this places has nothing to do with each other but they are they are there's an, uh, an article I think Lee Fang wrote it about uh, the coach brothers and other networks supporting this these candidates and what I see that towards, I mean, toward us, at least they're very, very blunt right now. Huh. That's well, some, right to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, th I think there's, you're going to see like some pretty straight up things, but it's usually most apparent to the people that are directly affected by the policies, whether it's sanctions or interventionism or whatnot. Um, they usually know exactly what's about and there really isn't as much of an attempt to lie to them because it, it, it would come it would it would just not work as well but i think it is for when i say that there is an international not just a domestic element to this i mean it's not for everyone it's not for the whole world it's specifically for certain u.s allies uh certain international ngos and whatnot so that they view the u.s as the preferable actor in any uh, but it, it's definitely no. Not... But there's a big uh, there's a big proportion in Latin America that loves the U.S. That, that oh yeah that grabs. I mean, I grew up I grew up listening that the problem with Argentina were Argentinians, and now all of a sudden it's poor people being lazy, like meritocracy out of the blue, and people love it. It's like it's spreading like white fire. So oh, yeah. yes, there is what you say. But how long? How how far do you think they're going to get? to prevent China from taking from spreading influence I mean I, I don't know I just just quick, quickly if I, if I can interject the, the whole idea I think there's a chicken and egg question with some of this like when Bolsonaro visited Putin in February if you remember there was like a, a spate of stories here in the US about how um, that was Hernandez it wasn't Bolsonaro that was the president of Argentina that, oh, was... uh, yes. Uh, no, Boston... that, uh, congressman, that there was this congressman that said that we are becoming communists. I don't know how many things he says. But, well, I, I don't remember that. I, I do know Bolsonaro did visit with Putin in, in, in mid-February, and the, there was a big freakout about that because the, the implication was that, um, you know, Bolsonaro was on, in Trump's orbit, and simultaneously now he's in Putin's orbit. And it's it's sort of the same thing that Chris mentioned before. Is that because they would anyway or because they've been pushed together? I don't know. Wait, Chris, what do you what do you 
think about that. They just seem to be like useful foils. Uh, yeah. I mean, these things happen anyway. You know, these relations people have, people have various bilateral relations. Uh, the question is, is the kind of Beltway and London-based press going to freak out about it or not <laughs> and, and turn it into a huge kind of conspiracy? And the way that they talk about things is really interesting. I mean, the fact that you bring up South America, it's actually a, um, a region that I actually bring up quite a bit <laughs> in my research on this topic because I think the most galling example of all of this, of course, was in Bolivia recently. Uh, yes, when it was you had. Yeah, you, you had the uh, Janine Añez uh, came to power in a coup, and the way that the Western press covered that initial coup was extremely interesting, the, the, the terms that they phrased, because I, I don't remember which, it was a very prestigious news organization, but uh, it might have been Forbes, but I'm not sure, covered it with a full cover of Añez, and it, said, and it described her as a women's activist. Um. Yeah. You, know, you know what happened with Argentinian uh, journalists, both of every, every, I mean, the, from the right and the, le and the left here, they had to go to the, to the embassy and were rescued by the military here because they, they put the, in the newspapers, the government put their faces and saying that they were secessionists. Which it makes no sense, but yes, and um, yes, but oh, thank you, Celia. I appreciate it. It's, 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 yeah, I'm going. <laughs> okay, I keep it. Thank you so much. Uh, okay, we'll go do a few more. That's, that's I do. I do want to mention in case anyone does not um, does not remember the the brief but uh, ever so unspectacular Anya's administration. Uh, this this woman's activist who was held up as like the first girl boss of Bolivia uh, did go on to massacre indigenous activists en masse and attempt to impose mandatory Christianity on people that still practiced indigenous faiths. So uh, you are going to get these weird like social justice oriented rhetoric and language from the DC elite. But in many cases, it is just going to go to the stuff that, you know, it would have gone to in the cold war. Well, now you're just quibbling, you know, over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's really interesting. No, okay, okay. Tyler, I think you're up. Hi, how are you guys? Love your work both. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, um, I'm going to try to be brief, but I do have a couple points to make because this conversation is sort of directly in my wheelhouse. Um, just, just for reference, I'm 38, which means I was a senior in high school when the planes hit the towers. And I had, you know, I grew up in a small town in northern Vermont, which means I have working class friends who fought in those neocon wars. But my own experience was one of being not uniquely, but kind of uncommonly smart and nerdy and went off to college and kind of thought more about the foreign policies that were directly affecting my friends. So I've got this sort of perspective of both worlds, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. And so to me, this sort of rightward shift in uh, liberal politics has been underway for a long time. Like, Bush was obviously a monster in my view. At the time, I thought he was the worst president in American history. And of course, it was a huge hope and change supporter. Um, because it Arguably, seemed like Obama you was... You still make the case that he was today, I think. <laughs> that, well, uh, uh, and that's fair. Um, I, I, Of course, there was a huge hope and change supporter because it seemed like Obama was a human being. And of course, right. the, insane, the, the, the sane and human thing to do would be end Iraq war and repeal the Patriot Act. 
And I got, you know, a, you know, right-wing neocon alarm bells when I started to be one of the few people in my own friend group to pay attention to the fact that, for example, Obama called Congress back for a special session to extend uh, provisions of the Patriot Act that had been due to sunset clause. And, uh, you know, he was the progenitor of the Syrian invasion and of course. the Libyan war was under his tenure. And, uh, uh, you know, there's the, some some really, really frightening kind of right wing moves in in what I saw were liberal politics at the time really set off some alarm bells for me. And I think what you guys were saying earlier about Trumpism sort of accelerating this trend was really interesting to me because I saw. Trump's isolationism was only rhetorically deep, right? As you as you yeah. pointed out, Chris. But 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 that was enough to force neocons who had previously been comfortable in the Republican Party to flee the movement en masse. And again, alarm bells go off as I watch previously liberal progressives welcome them into the movement with open arms on an anti-Trump basis. Um, oh, yeah. So today <laughs> you have the situation where the current standard bearer of the Democratic Party is the guy who wrote the original version of the Patriot Act all the way back in the 90s before 9-11 ever justified any, you know, par- uh, paranoia and, and possible reason for passing it, right? And the In addition to whipping up support on his side of the aisle for the Iraq war vote, yeah. Well, that's that's entirely fair. But so so the, the, the point I'm getting to here is like today I look at, you know, a lot. last example is the Domestic Terrorist Surveillance Act, which is basically Patriot Act for American citizens now. Um, all, 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 all this evidence leads me to conclude that, you know, on these foreign policy and surveillance and police state issues, the people who call themselves the modern left are actually significantly to the right of the some isolated wing of the Republican Party, which is kind of left wing on these on these issues on just like small government libertarian issues. Right. It seems like just just on that ideological basis alone, there's some parts of the Republican Party that are actually to the left of modern Democrats on these police state surveillance state military industrial complex issues. And so I find myself among a weird group of progressive lefties who's now more open to, you know, right wing messaging on these foreign policy issues, because I think it's further left than the other option. And I just uh, um, I'll I'll sign off there and and just get y'all's reflection on that on that experience. I think you're right. Um, I I mean, I'm not going to get really into what specifically is left and right, because I view that those things are so subjective and they also vary with every era and every different government you look at, you know? Um, but I totally get where you're coming from because I too was a, uh, I mean, I'm a couple years younger than you, but I had the same experience basically moving through time of being very, very disaffected by Bush and the response to 9-11 and then getting my hopes up uh, about Obama and being very disaffected by him. Um, there's actually a significant part of, of the Woke Imperium paper um, that I wrote that talks about the Arab Spring as a transition movement uh, between the kind of what Obama said he was running on and then what he ended up doing and, and how the Arab Spring, particularly the Libya intervention, was justified. And it was justified 
by talking about it as a human rights first operation in the public sphere it, it got a lot of support i think people wanted to a lot of like partisan liberals wanted to show how tough Obama was and that he wasn't just a, 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 a wuss, which is what, you know, every every single Democrat, even that late would have been called, you know, a, a wuss who was stopped on defense by Republicans. Um, and of course, there was a lot of ridiculous misinformation about that war, including and this this fits under the human rights rubric, um, including the idea that was uh, never proven correct. Uh, was debunked after the war that Gaddafi was supplying his soldiers with Viagra so that they could commit sustained right. mass rape. Um, <laughs> this was BS, by the way. <laughs> yeah, had to be like the one unnamed source, right? Uh, that the whole thing was based on. Yes, one unnamed source. The whole thing was based on it. Never, there was never any evidence to substantiate it. Um, even after the government fell and we got access to a lot of their stuff. Uh, so, you know, the Arab Spring is a huge turn moment. And it's also, it's also quite obvious since Obama actually accelerated Bush's Patriot Act and expanded its provisions and became even more obsessed with whistleblowers, uh, that he was, he was a neocon too. And so you, the question becomes, and, and I've been an independent since Obama was reelected because, uh, I'd like to tell people that I joined the Democratic Party in 2008 because of Obama and I left in 2013 because of Obama. <laughs> Uh, but like, um, th this, this was a, uh, this was like a, um, you know, he, he's, he continued all of, and in some cases accelerated Bush's policies. He took a lot of the incompetent evangelicals out of office. So it, it looked less stupid, but as we see in the long term, these kind of stealth regime change wars, especially the serial one, which is just continuously bleeding to this day, they really do as much damage, um, to global stability as Iraq did in a lot of ways. And um, when um, the thing is that, like, you look at this realignment and you really have to wonder how many of these people uh, who were ostensibly on the left before are just kind of partisans. And they, it's, it's good. They don't care about policy. They, they just like it when uh, their guy gets to do it. Right. And their guy gets to call other people the, the foreign traitors and whatnot. Uh, so it, I think there's an element of just people don't care. They're mostly focused on kind of the culture war and, and those are their key issues and they don't care about foreign uh, policy. They sometimes they don't even care about economic policy. And so you get this weird kind of realignment, which is the, the establishment left and right allied together and then the anti-establishment left and right allied together against them. <laughs> and I think we're in this period of transition because, you know, like I said, I don't think that there is this internal platonic left or right or whatever. I just think there's these multiple interest factions and they are realigning because some people are really, really sick of the war on terror and the huge amount of control that forces allied to that have. And those people can have pretty diverse ideological backgrounds. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Tyler, I totally get where you're coming from. I, I feel very much the same way. And I, I think a lot of people do, um, the, you know, for me reporting, during the Obama years was, was so strange. It was, um, it was, it was kind of a mind fuck in some ways because you would have these episodes where if Bush were still president, the stories that were leaking out would be massive out, would have been massive outrages on, on the quote unquote left. Like um, when we first learned about the terror Tuesdays, I don't know if you remember those, Chris, that was about the drone program where it turned out that 
uh, Obama and Michael Hayden uh, and all these people were having weekly meetings to decide who to, whom to assassinate by drone. Um, I do, yeah. Okay, I forgot about that for a while. Huh. Yeah, that was an incredible story, and it got almost, I mean, it, it kind of like leaked out, and then there was nothing, right? And then uh, then you had all these, like, just this week, there was somebody who came out of, um, who was approved for release from Guantanamo Bay, but uh, you had these horrible stories from Gitmo that were coming out all the time. Uh, last year, there was a story about um, a judge ruling that uh, an interrogation through torture was admissible in a, mil- in a military court. And the, the person in that case w- was claiming that he had been repeatedly and brutally tortured with a broomstick. Uh, this was, this, a lot of this happened during the Obama years and came out during the Obama years. There were, there were suspects who, who couldn't sit correctly um, yeah. their hearings because of rectal feeding, and so, but there was almost no outcry, which I just thought was so strange. Where were where were the same people? Right? I don't know. Like, well, do you remember? Do you remember? So, speaking of things that got memory hold from that time, do you remember in, in the second term of Bush? So, in the first term of Bush, it was all like trucker nuts patriotism, and and, and Hollywood towed the line, and everyone was totally into it. But I think in Bush's second term after Katrina, after everything, people really got sick of him. And, and there was this huge bombardment in the second Bush term of these like Hollywood, I, I, I coined a term for them a couple years ago. What was it? It was uh, awareness movies, right? Yeah, there were all these awareness movies that came out that were like, the world is 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 uh, Bush is bad and extraordinary rendition and stop loss. And, right. you know, troops are forced to go back. And like, it was, Killing. these movies all failed, right? They failed miserably. They, they were popular with like the NPR circuit and then they died in the public. But there was this push to be like, oh, we're all against that now. But at the same time, even before Bush left office, the intrinsic message of many of those movies, and, and you know, the, we're also talking about stuff that got popular like Blood Diamond, right, back then, was kind of this weirdly, like, soft interventionist message that was like, isn't the world scary and bad and Bush is bad, but America is still, like, a force of good. And I think in that uh, kind of zeitgeist, you see this this turn, which also you see with journalists under Obama, many journalists, who were less bothered by something when a scary... Uh, when there wasn't a scary evangelical Republican doing it, but they were the same policies happening anyway. Yeah, remember uh, one of the Body of Lies was one of those movies, right? Like, it, it, oh yeah, right. That was another. That was like Ridley Scott, and it was it was done uh, in this way that kind of suggested that well, if you had the right people doing the in- interventions. Um, you know, and assassinating the right the right enemies, then it was going to be fine, right? Um, right. But yeah, yeah it, was, it was very odd. It was like that that, that that was kind of a Hollywood rebrand, which was interesting. Um, but, yeah, and then there, there were stuff like that, stuff like The Kingdom. It was like the the, the Saudi Arabia action movie. Um, and, and then yeah, uh, wasn't there? Wasn't like I don't remember it. Wasn't like Syriana kind of like that. That was briefly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. If you have if you have a, a smart, bearded, overweight George Clooney doing it, it's it's not as uh, if you have the right people doing this stuff, it's going to yeah. be. Uh, so yeah, that was that was really interesting. Um, yeah, Tyler, I, I I think we're both with you on this. So th- 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 thanks so much. And uh, by the way, where are you from in Vermont? Are you, 
I'm from far northern Vermont, a little town called Waterville is right near Smuggler's Notch. If you're unfamiliar, it's an hour north of Burlington. Gotcha. Uh, I, I drove through it one time, actually. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. Uh, Chris, you got time for one more? Yeah, one more. Sure. All right. All right excellent. Uh... Much love, guys. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot, Tyler. All right. This is V. Are you there? Hi. How are you? Hi. How are you doing? Hi, Matt. Hi, Chris. Hi. Uh, so my comment is um, regarding, uh, I guess, the world we live in today and the speed of information. And um, you sort of see, you know, uh, the different faces they've had to put up as the face of, I guess, empire. Um, the way we share information, the way it moves around the world. Um, it just all sort of uh, all makes it almost eventually impossible for them to control the narrative. Um, I wanted to get your take on, uh, I guess, that idea and just the speed of information, how things are, are moving. And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I never in a million years would uh, my thesis be that, like, this new kind of millennial woke cabal of the professional managerial class has a lock on information or, or, you know, is unchallenged by any means. But um, I think because of its internal blob culture, it is an internally unchallenged. And so it has a lot of cohesiveness where a lot of things that oppose it, many of which could be, could be wacko, uh, but, but they, they don't have that. So it speaks with this certain level of authority. So I think the point is not to dominate the information, although we definitely see, particularly when it comes to issues like like the covert war waged in Syria, we definitely see a, a kind of not so much um, changing the narrative, but just kind of covering there is no narrative whatsoever. Um, but I, I think the the method that is currently going on is and this isn't so much a part of my research so far. So this is, uh, you know, like, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but it is a future avenue of exploration. But I think that a big part of this is less just controlling the narrative and more looking like the best version of the narrative, right? Looking not just reliable, but also good, which is why I think that like uh, quote unquote wokeness and, and things around it is so useful to interventionists because it's harder to criticize people who are just quote unquote being good people and who just care so much. Uh, and so you see in a lot of uh, the commentary towards conflict zone, you see this like, here's my credentials as this like great person who 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 is also part of this establishment. And if you criticize it, you know may, maybe you might have some problem because you're criticizing you know a person from a, a minority group or what have you. And, and and I think the best example of this would be I don't know if you've seen it, but the uh, the the humans of CIA uh, recruitment <laughs> video <laughs> where there's this there's this lady who who opens by saying she's a cisgender millennial oh, who struggles yeah. with anxiety, but she's also like following in the footsteps of the CIA and she's becoming a, a powerful girl boss officer and uh, it's so it's so bizarre, but I think it kind of shows the type of narrative that that is meant to look more respectable than say narratives that would oppose it. Yeah, and just quickly about the the speed of information and how things change. I mean, in the you might actually be too young to remember this, Chris, but in the early Bush years, um, there was all this paranoia among sort of the liberal left about programs like 
total information awareness. Do you remember that? Um, oh, barely. Oh, my God. <laughs> this was a DARPA Pentagon pro- data mining program, which I'm, I, I, they probably abandoned TIA. They probably are doing something very similar to what was talked about back then. But the idea that everybody was afraid of at the time was this Orwellian super net of information that would not only gather um, all your data so that it could t- know ex- what you were doing at all times, but also project um, uh, a narrative onto society uh, in a protective way through the media, through the internet, through everything. And there was a lot of fear about this stuff back then. Um, and what was so, and I think what's so interesting looking back at that is A, they never did that program. B, um, at the time, it looked like the Republicans were going to win the next 50 elections, right? The Democrats were in complete disarray. Uh, 9-11 seemed like it, it had limitless uh, political utility for the Republicans. And things turned on a dime, right? I mean, we, as we found out, um, you know, the, the, trend that, the trends that you think are forever uh, in America, they, they don't last very long, actually, right? So I think that's... Yeah. Just- Bear in mind when we think about this, you know, as you say, it's internally unchallenged right now, but that that can even that can change. Oh, yeah. Oh, big time. Uh, that is. Yeah, sorry. I, I did totally forget that, that that the timing aspect was an element of the question. Um, I absolutely I, I actually I mentioned this. I mentioned this in Woke Imperium because I, I first opened with the case that the Woke Imperium is not. It's a new form, but it is a continuous process. It's a thing we saw in the past. We saw it, obviously, with the religious right. We saw it with uh, William McKinley and how he justified the Spanish-American War. Um, uh, we saw it, I mean, honestly, you could say it's how the Puritans talked about the Pequot Indians while they were displacing and exterminating them in a lot of ways, uh, but saving their souls, quote-unquote. Um, and um, we also are going to see a new version of it in the future. It's not just a past thing. Uh, unlike people that believe in this extremely linear progressive interpretation of history, which I just do not think is viable if you actually read history, especially on the big big picture uh, level. Um, it's obvious that like the woke imperium will one day lose its power, uh, maybe sooner than later because things move so fast and it will be replaced by something else. And I think it's important to keep in mind when we're looking critically at uh, establishment foreign policy trends, what the future is going to be. So unless we get too reactionary and just say, oh, this is the thing that the empire does, and therefore, um, you know, just really focus on this, because I think it's very quite possible something will happen. I, I think wokeness is a kind of strange, unpopular ideology outside of, you know, academia and the media and so forth. And so I don't think it has huge staying power. And so it's very obvious that something is going to replace it. It could be a kind of, you know, marble bust defend Western civilization type thing. Um, from the right, or it could be a new left-wing thing where we intervene in countries because they're not doing uh, things uh, we, we like enough on different a set of issues, maybe closer to the center, maybe maybe economic, maybe related to climate change. Uh, so you've got, like, it's very much worth keeping in mind that as these things move faster and faster, this kind of inherent Anglo-Protestant justification for... Uh, uh, the military industrial complex is going to change and it's going to probably before our eyes mutate into something else. 
And then we might see another realignment like the one we previously just talked about, where a different faction of domestic politics comes to support an aggressive foreign policy and and another one becomes more dovish. So I think the, the utility is that it can be played with constantly. And therefore, there isn't just one thing you can always adapt to the general trends. Absolutely. Uh Chris, uh, thanks so much for coming out. Um, where can people find you? Uh, it's at peacedemocracydiplomacybot.org. Is that right? Uh, it's, it's, um, I believe it's uh, the website address is diplomacypeace.org. It's the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy is the name. Uh, a bunch of my writings are there. I also have a bunch of writings scattered throughout the place. They're mostly much more hard geopolitics than this. A lot of stuff at like national interest and Quincy and stuff. And then I have, yeah, um, I have a personal blog, which sometimes is foreign policy related and sometimes is not. So that's more of a mixed bag. Um, and that's on my Twitter handle, which is Christy Mott. Uh, but that's, that's all my stuff, really. I'm not, I'm not a uh, Mr. Uh, I don't have like a big brand presence or anything. <laughs> Excellent. Well, the, the paper's really interesting. Highly recommend that everybody read it. And uh, thanks, everybody, to to the 367 folks uh, who are still uh, still listening. Um, thanks for a great talk. Sorry we couldn't stay a little bit longer, but um, and, and apologies for the for the shaky beginning. But again, Chris, thanks for coming out, and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. Talk to you later. All right. Take care now. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye.